hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Rupa Subramania Show. As always, it's great to have you here, and thank you so much again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to tune in. Today, we're returning to a topic that many of us wish would just go away. But unfortunately, the powers that be and the doomsaying experts that whisper into their ears and also shout from the rooftops of Twitter uh, mean that fresh pandemic restrictions like masking mandates um, at least here in Canada, seem to be back in discussion. Uh, Canada just seems to have a really hard time uh, moving away from the can- pandemic, and I wonder why. Uh, many jurisdictions, for example, uh, here in Ontario, uh, both at the provincial and uh, municipal levels, are strongly encouraging mask use. And you know what happens when there's a strong recommendation um, after a while, if people don't do as as uh, as they're ordered by the government, uh, even if it defies all common sense or scientific evidence, it turns into a mandate. In Ottawa, for example, the school board is actually considering mandating mask use in schools, which defies the scientific uh, evidence out there, which tells us that it would be really bad for children. My guest today has been at the forefront of challenging this official doomsaying narrative around COVID right from the get-go, right from the beginning of the pandemic. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and one of the architects of the Great Barrington Declaration, which is about calling for a sensible and measured approach to the pandemic uh, rather than just mindlessly locking us all down with restrictions, uh, which ends up causing more harm than good. And we now know that these restrictions and the lockdowns actually ended up hurting society more than they ended up helping us. Dr. Bhattacharya, by being at the forefront of this rational and sensible approach to COVID, has had to face the usual criticisms by those promoting groupthink, that he's spreading misinformation. But he's withstood uh, all of these criticisms and he keeps fighting the good fight. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Bhattacharya to the show. So it's great to have you on the show, Jay. I'm so glad we could finally make this happen. Um, I'm sure it's a lot warmer in California where you are than here in Ottawa. Um, So, Jay, I first discovered you way back at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I would say as early as March 2020, uh, when you wrote this uh, very um, influential and powerful op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, co-authored by uh, Aaron Ben-David, there you made this very important argument that COVID debts are likely highly exaggerated, essentially because the calculation uses the wrong denominator. Uh, The true fatality rate is the percentage of people infected who died, not the percentage of identified positive cases. Um, And this is because of uh, selection bias of uh, those who would be tested. So what was great about this op-ed is that it made a very important point, a very important argument using statistical concepts that could be understood by the layperson. Looking back at that time, you and your co-author were probably among the very first to challenge um, an emerging consensus or emerging orthodoxy, which quickly uh, which which quickly hardened into orthodoxy. Uh, what was your motivation at that time? Did you ever think that that uh, that the world world would lose two or more years of the pandemic in the way that it did? I mean, I was in many ways naive at that time. I, I um, yeah. the, the the thing that motivated me to write that piece, uh, in part, the main, the main, the, the the most prominent thing was was it was mm-hmm. a scientific hypothesis, right? right? I, actually, if you read the piece carefully, 
it, we're very clear that we don't know the mortality rate. We called for a study, measure the, the uh, and, you know, basically it was a seroprevalence study to, to measure the, 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 the prevalence of the, of the disease in the population at large, mm-hmm. uh, which we were pretty sure was going to be much more than the number of people that identified as cases, but we didn't know how much. And so right. that's why that was the purpose was that was to, to call for a study to test a, a scientific hypothesis. But I was also in the back of my head, I'm a health policy person, health economist, as well as as well as an epidemiologist. Um, and to me, the lockdown policy that we followed, it was so clear and obvious it was going to cause damage to mm-hmm. the poor, the working class, to children, uh, to vulnerable people, that we displaced all of our other priorities in life with this one priority, avoiding COVID. Well, all those other priorities, many of them are vital to health and well-being, as yeah. we've learned. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I used uh, your op-ed in a in a piece that I wrote. I wrote a series of articles back in March of 2020, and I was stuck in India at that time. And as you know, India um, uh, enforced one of the uh, harshest lockdowns in the world at that time. Imagine locking down 1.1 billion people. Uh, yet they did that, and I was making the case that India shouldn't do that. Uh, and in exactly saying what you you just said, which is you know you're locking down the vast majority of the people who are poor um and uh and and uh but yet you know uh, you know uh, voices like mine weren't were were just uh, dismissed as being uh, you know as, as as you know that we weren't taking the pandemic seriously and look at all of the people who are dying in Italy and so on and so forth how how, how did you i mean speaking of lockdowns um you know you've argued in various fora that lockdowns um, were a mistake. Um, why do you think they were a mistake? Uh, what was the risk-benefit calculation that was going uh, through your head uh, when you realized that lockdowns were were doing more harm than good? Um, and, and likewise, you've also opposed vaccine mandates. And and again, you know, I'm wondering what why why you thought that these measures were doing more harm than good. So let's take the lockdowns, and, and you mentioned India. So let's let's talk about that. Yeah. The lockdowns in India, right? So yeah. uh, when Prime Minister Modi imposed the lockdown, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it was as you said, one of the most draconian in the world. Uh, he mm-hmm. uh, ordered us like a half billion migrant workers yeah. to go back to their home villages, mm-hmm. right? So you know they work in Mumbai or somewhere. They sell coconuts on the street. The, their entire life savings is in the coconuts that they bought. Right. If they buy, if they sell the coconuts for the day, then they can buy coconuts the next day and then feed their family. Well, the lockdown meant they had no one to sell the coconuts to. Now they're utterly impoverished. Now they have to go back sometimes a, a hundred, two hundred, three thousand miles, a, a thousand miles away, back to their home village. There's no capacity in the, in the Indian transportation system to transport a half mm-hmm. billion people overnight. Um, and so a, a a a half billion people walked. Some of them walked, some of them rode their bike, uh, crowded, overcrowded trains or buses or whatever they could manage um, to get back home. A thousand died that day en route to home. A thousand immediately, yeah, yeah. In that, just in that one order. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cruelty of it is almost unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Um, the the um, the, the the there was a friend of mine that did a zero prevalence study measure of, of antibodies in the population in Mumbai in July of 2020. And what he found was that there was a deep divide in, um, if you if you, if you you go to the Mumbai slums, for like the Dharavi slums in Mumbai, what you saw was 70% prevalence of the disease by July, 2020. During the lockdown, in outside of the slums, it's like 20%. 
There was this deep inequality in the ability for people, poor people, to comply with the lockdown orders. Lockdown means death for the poor. That's in, in the in the developing world. In the developed world, it also there's this deep social inequality that characterizes how lockdowns were actually experienced, right? So if you look at the data out of Toronto from early in the pandemic, what you see is the 30 richest neighborhoods uh, during the lockdown uh, have a huge spread of the disease. I'm sorry, the 30 poorest neighborhoods have a huge spread of the disease, whereas the 30 richest neighborhoods, almost no spread in the first few weeks of the lockdown. The, the ability to comply with lockdowns depends on your social position, your income, your, 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 your status, the kind of job you have. Only a small fraction of the world's population can abide a lockdown. Uh, that's That was running through my head in the beginning. Um, and for, for closing schools, I mean, that's going to have lifelong negative consequences on our children. It, ha it already has had negative, deep negative consequences psychologically, of course, in terms of the learning loss. But the reason why I say it's lifelong is that there's a literature that that's a, uh, the, from before the pandemic that measured the, the high returns, the incredibly high returns to investments in education. You interrupt that for a short time, which you, what you've done then is consign those kids short time now is two years in some some places, to a lifetime of lower income, more unemployment, uh, worse health, and shorter life. That's what we've done. One estimate was in, from just the U.S. alone, it's five and a half million life years taken away from our children just based on the spring school closures alone. Spring 2020 spring clo uh, school closures alone. Um, we basically threw away our commitments to the poor, the vulnerable, the working class overnight in the hopes of stopping the spread of a disease that is not stoppable with any of these kinds of technologies. So was China a template uh, for us? Uh, because um, it was China and then Italy, and then everybody else followed suit. What uh, was the inspiration behind the lockdowns China? I, I think it was actually. So it's interesting to yeah. read FOIA emails, FOIA Freedom Information Act emails mm -hmm. from um, uh, uh, from communications between Tony Fauci, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, uh, Jeremy Farrar, who's the head of the Wellcome Trust, a big charity uh, that that funds biomedical research in, in the UK, um, and uh, and and a whole host of virologists. Some of the the, the um, uh, the 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 uh, one of the, the focuses in early January was to get uh, some American to go on this World Health Organization junket to China, because if you remember back then, China had mm -hmm. had imposed this draconian lockdown in, in Wuhan in uh, in July in January. January. Yeah. And uh, so the the uh, the the uh, there's this clip Cliff Lane who's a aide to Tony Fauci. They, the American government finally finagles his Cliff Lane onto this junket. Mm -hmm. He goes on this junket and and he, and on the on the it seems like on the flight back almost he's writing or talking with Maria Van Kerkhove, who's a epidemiologist, high epidemiologist of high position at the World Health Organization. They write a report in in February 2020 based on their observations of China. Uh, Cliff Lane writes to Tony Fauci. He writes uh, to, to Maria Kirkov, He writes. Um, it looks like what China did worked, albeit at great cost. We have very difficult decisions to make. Uh, it's going to take more than just the people in this room to make those decisions. This is like mid-February 2020. If you remember back then, um, there was no talk of lockdown. In fact, yeah. there was a big pushback from the left against uh, the flight ban from China. 
to the, the and when Trump opposed it, people were accusing him of racism, right? Actually, mm-hmm. I think the flight ban was a mistake because yeah. it was already too late. Yeah. The disease was already seeded, I think, in fall of 2020, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I can talk about some of the evidence for that. But the point is that um, certainly by February 2020, it was already all over the world. That's why the cases were you seeing in Italy back then. There was also Iran. You're seeing cases. Yeah. Uh, that meant the disease was out there. It's a highly yeah. infectious respiratory disease very clearly spread by aerosols. That's why that's the only way you get those big super spreader events that we saw in the early days. Um, so you just have this like situation where uh, everyone in the West is looking to the Chinese model, thinking that the Chinese model had worked. Mm-hmm. They're looking at Italy saying, oh, gosh, they didn't shut down early enough. That's why it didn't work. They weren't draconian enough. That's why it didn't work. Let's adopt the Chinese model. We can get make the disease go away. We'll be heroes. Um, that uh, that Chinese model has a tremendous impact on the Western epidemiological thinking and on Western public health thinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking back at that time, one of the puzzles I had then, and this is, you know, when I was writing these pieces sitting in India, uh, I remember the the news coming out of Italy was horrific. Uh, almost every day there were like seven, eight hundred deaths. And I remember, you know, people were freaking out on social media. Uh, this is happening in Italy. It's a country in the West. It, it has a... Uh, very fairly good healthcare system. If this can happen in Italy, uh, just think about you know what this could mean for the rest of us. So what happened in Italy? Why was why you know looking back at that time, you know why was it so bad in Italy? Or was that was that normal given Italy's demographic profile? I mean, a few things happened. So one, Italy yeah. is certainly older, so it, you would mm-hmm. expect there to be much more severe yeah. disease from this disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, so that I think that's certainly part of it. The demographics were very important there. Yeah, uh, The Italian healthcare system is stressed at baseline okay. every respiratory virus season. That's not that's a normal thing. Of course, it was stressed much more here. Part of it is also, and you saw this in China, the doctors themselves were scared to t- treat the patients. They were they were doing these ventilator protocols in part, I think, to protect themselves. Um, and uh, because you know, if you're on a ventilator, maybe there's less virus particles being spread outside because it goes in the machine or something. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what they were thinking. The key thing, though, is that uh, is that and so and so like you know, you saw those like those coffins. Uh, yeah, the, 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 exactly. uh, all these people like lined up in coffins. Yeah. They couldn't get family members to come and pick them up because they were scared. They, the fear itself, I think, drove the, the drove itself. It's like a self fulfilling prophecy, a cycle, right? So uh, the p- people were scared, doctors were scared. They acted in ways that 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 furthered the panic, and um, and they were looking for any any guru to solve the problem. Um, and they just thought, okay, well, to, you know, th- this, uh, if we just locked down like China did, we would have, we would have avoided this. Um, the, the, the thing that would have avoided this would have been focused protection of vulnerable people, older people, right? If, 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 uh, people had looked at the data out of China and the diamond princess and realized, look, there's this enormous age gradient, the people who are most at risk of being hospitalized and dying are older people. It's still 80% of the deaths, I think worldwide are, are over 65 if we had adopted policies then to protect older people, not sending COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes, for instance, um, then we would have avoided a lot of the, the death and harm that happened in the early days of the pandemic. Um, and I think a lot of that was like, it's, it's just panic. Like we made these panic decisions, assuming that we were doing good, when in fact we ended up doing you know very, very bad things that harm people. Yeah. If we'd had the goal of focus protection, protection of older people, protection of vulnerable people, 
instead of protection of hospital systems, we would never have sent COVID infected patients back to nursing homes. That was that that problem was caused by a lack of understanding of the epidemiology of this disease and who was most at risk. Yeah, uh, you kind of touched upon the Great Barrington Declaration. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, but just a, a question before that, uh, with so many screw ups by governments around the world, uh, who, in your opinion, got it right? Uh, which which places got it right? Well, almost everyone else was getting it wrong. And what exactly did they get right? Well, Rupa, I don't I don't think there's any place that got it all completely right. That's not mm-hmm. there's, it's just it was not possible in the you know, fog of war. Um, OK. But I, I do think that some places were better than others. Like, so for instance, let's take Sweden, because that's the most probably yeah. prominent example of a sort of a, 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 a mm-hmm. country that followed a diff, very different policy. Mm-hmm. I think in the early days of the pandemic, the, the Swedish Stockholm um, public health actually made huge errors. They uh, sent COVID infected patients back to their nursing homes, causing tremendous deaths in those in those uh, in, the, in those locations. Um, but very early on, uh, they, they corrected themselves. Uh, Anders Tegnell, the, the the head of Swedish public health, made a decision to follow the old pandemic plan, which is protection of the vulnerable, uh, don't spread panic, spread uh, try, try to calm the population down, um, and, and that's that's and 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 uh, that's what he did. So, like for instance, they didn't close schools because the kids were not at risk, and the a data out of Iceland was suggesting that kids were not particularly efficient spreaders of this disease. Um, so you had like so so it's, and and on the other hand they they tried to after that horrible mistake in Stockholm they tried to advise older people you know that this actually is a high risk disease for them they organized communities to to um to provide support for older people living in the community so they could reduce the amount of exposures they had they actually did recommend uh, limitations in mass gatherings, which are completely reasonable in the disease of spreading. Uh, but they were mostly it was a voluntary kind of kind of effort to try to. And the reason why I could do this is because they'd built trust with the population. The population trusted Swedish public health because their Swedish public health never lied to their population. Um, and as a consequence, they they could they could make these measures um, that actually turned out to be quite effective. The overall excess mortality in Sweden is actually pretty low, um, you know, on par with the other Scandinavian countries and below much of the rest of Europe, certainly much lower than the United States. Yeah, uh, which is uh, a remarkable remarkable thing to say because the Swedish model was derided right from the get-go. Um, and, uh, and those of us who said, hey, look at what Sweden is doing, maybe we could learn a thing or two from them. Uh, were just, uh, again, once again, dismissed. Um, but, uh, you know, coming to the Great Barrington Declaration, you you are one of the architects of the Great Barrington De- Declaration, which called for a sensible and measured approach uh, when responding to the pandemic, rather than using these blunt instruments of uh, lockdowns. Um, you were naturally criticized heavily at that time. But now it seems that many governments have quietly pivoted to your approach, uh, the approach that you and your colleagues advocated, um, maybe even China, uh, belatedly uh, perhaps re- realizing the, the 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 folly of their zero COVID policy. Uh, what was the motivation behind the declaration, and do you believe that it had uh, the desired effect on the discourse that you all were hoping for? Uh, so, so my mo- my main motivation to write the declaration um, was to tell the public. Mm-hmm. that there actually was a scientific debate uh the up to that point it seemed like to me from the public discourse that people thought that that that, that the 
the lockdown, the pro-lockdown position was unanimous among scientists. And there are only fringe, you know, like a few fringe characters were, were opposed to it. When in fact, I knew that many, many, many prominent, reasonable scientists had deep discomfort with the, the lockdown-focused policy we followed. Uh, so the, the purpose was to tell the public that there was this scientific discussion going on and uh, to uh, shatter any illusion that there may be a, a consensus around this. There not well, there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. um, you asked about if I it had the, it's the desired impact. I, I have to say, unfortunately, no. Uh, we 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 uh, uh, what happened uh, uh, turns out a few days after we wrote that declaration, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me Sinetra Gupta, she's one of the fantastic epidemiologists at Oxford University, and Martin Kuldorf, uh, who's a, a, then at Harvard University, um, he, to, uh, he, they call, they, they, he called us fringe epidemiologists. Uh, I got, I guess, let's see if I can find it. Someone, some, a friend of mine sent me a, a card that he made up for me that says fringe epidemiology on it. Uh, <laughs> with my name on it. So anyways, uh, uh, the, um, that, and, then, and then he called for a devastating takedown of the premises of the, of the declaration. I okay. started then getting calls from reporters at like the New York Times and Washington Post, in effect, asking me why I wanted to kill grandma. When in fact, what the declaration said was protect vulnerable grandma. older people. That was the yeah. central yeah. idea of the declaration. What I really hope would happen, uh, in addition to the public understanding that this, there was no illusion consensus, I was hoping that public health would engage in a a creative dis discussion about how to protect the vulnerable old. We gave a lot of ideas in the, in the declaration, but you know, protection of, of vulnerable people is a local thing. It really depends on living local living circumstances. It's gonna be the, the right policies in Ottawa are gonna be very different than the ones in Toronto, very different than the ones in downtown LA, very different than the ones in Billings, Montana. It'll depend on where the older people live, their their, their resources, their uh, the, the resources of the broad, broader community and so on. Um, and what I was hoping is that local public health would engage in a creative, uh, a, a, a creative thinking about how to protect, better protect vulnerable older people. But instead, we got this demonization, smearing. People who signed the declaration, some of them lost their jobs for, for the act of signing it. Um, it was really an amazing thing to watch public health decide, especially the high poobahs of public health decide that we were so dangerous that we had to be. Uh, you know, essentially thrown out the of the city walls, you know, put, put under the fringe instead mm -hmm. of instead of actually with uh, creative engagement, sci and scientific uh, discussion, good faith scientific discussion. Yeah, well, what an extremely horrific and shameful part of our history. Um, it's yeah, it's just uh, crazy, absolutely insane when you think about it. Now, um, we're we're now in the you know the late fall of 2022, and the pandemic is still hanging over us. Uh, like a shadow, especially when it comes to uh, government's saber rattling about renewed restrictions, especially here in Canada, where we just refuse to move on. Um, where we are today, uh, do you believe it makes any sense to reimpose masking mandates, for example, whether it is in public places or specifically in schools? Um, and does it make sense for, uh, so one on masking mandates, should they come back? Um, does it make sense for average healthy people to jump onto an endless round of boosters as governments are encouraging, at least here in Canada. Um, basically, where are we in the pandemic right now, Jay? Can the average person just assume uh, life is back to normal and treat COVID-19 as, uh, as it's another respiratory disease of a type we've seen, uh, we've dealt with for millennia? 
So uh, first on the mask mandates, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that the mask mandates were uh, com- almost entirely useless, almost yeah. entirely, why, not, why hedge? I think they were entirely useless mm-hmm. in actually stopping disease spread. Uh, heavily masked countries like Japan, South Korea have seen enormous outbreaks of the disease. Yeah. Uh, the mask mandates have not stopped the disease from spreading in China. Um, the masks do not work, did not work to stop disease spread. Instead, what those mandates did is it created distrust in public health that vastly oversold their ability. They, and, and worse, it was, a, it was a mechanism to moralize the disease, to, tr- to divide people into good guys and bad guys. You're wearing a mask, you're a good guy. If you're, wearing a, you're not wearing a mask, you're a bad guy. And that, thus divide the public. So uh, now half the public doesn't trust public health. They, half of the public hates their neighbor. The other half hates the other other neighbor. Um, you you have a, a something that public health should never do. Is public health should seek to unify the population, not divide it. The mass mandates are are almost a perfect tool for division, and it was not based on any reasonable science. The the randomized studies before the pandemic on the ability of masks to stop highly infectious respiratory diseases in uh, masks used by the general public to stop those highly infectious respiratory diseases was non-existent. In fact, they they found negative results. That was why in February 2020, you heard public health saying, don't use masks, Mm -hmm. because that was the the, the consensus based on a tremendous body of evidence. Based on nothing, we switched overnight to you have to use masks. And it's the only way to stop it. The evidence developed since the pandemic shows no uh, n- n- that nothing's changed really in terms of the science. They don't really work when used by the general public. And you can and the physics of it can explain why, right? So if you wear a mask, uh, you don't have glasses, but I have glasses. My glass, my uh, fog up. Just, yeah, they fog up. Yeah. Uh, this disease is spread by aerosols. Yeah. Uh, aerosols are like they sit in the, the the air for a long time. The fogging up is the aerosols. Those if I have COVID, my glasses are filled up with aerosols. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, you just can't stop a disease like this with masks uh, when it's worn by the general public in the way that normally the general public would wear it. And kids yeah. wearing masks, I mean, come mm. on, that there's mm. literally no evidence that that does any good. And there may be some harm. Like I've, I've had lots of reports from autistic moms who wrote to me saying, look, my kid can't abide by a mask he can't, or hearing impaired uh, parents mm-hmm. or uh you know it's, it's just uh it's it's it you need to if you're going to impose something like this on the general public you have to have excellent evidence and the evidence base was poor and the and and it was divisive it's diminished destroyed trust in public to bring it back now makes no sense mm. um, sorry i got a long t- long time about mass but like, like the other part of your question is even more important rupa yeah. um you asked about where we are in the pandemic the key thing is such a large fraction of the population has had COVID and recovered. It's not March, March 2020, everybody, nearly everybody was, was at risk because no one had seen COVID before. The bodies did not cope with it. Now we're at a point where such a large fraction of the population has had it before. It's become, it's defanged the disease. It's not that you can't still die from it. It's, there are still vulnerable people, but they're vulnerable to so many other things. They're vulnerable to other respiratory diseases, for instance. Um, so they have to be careful no matter what. But for the vast majority of the population, it's not going to kill you. Vast, vast. It's 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 ten times more, a hundred times le- uh, more. Uh, 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 it's it's le- I'm sorry, hundred times less deadly than ten times less deadly than it was before, for the vast majority. So it's it's a it's a relatively minor risk relative to the other risks people face in their lives. 
And so to bring back all of the all of the old uh, old things that hope that didn't work before, in the hopes that it'll work now, when the benefit of them are uh, is even less than it was back then, makes no sense. Well, so despite all of this evidence that you point to about masks uh, before the pandemic pandemic and and during the course of the pandemic, why did governments then um, uh, flip flop on this? They said masks don't really do much. Uh, and then and then masks became the silver bullet for everything. And, uh, you know, it's it's a bit like uh, what happened with uh, when, you know, with the vaccines, the vaccines were meant to prevent transmission among among other things. Uh, but then Omicron happened and everybody was getting uh, COVID-19. So, um, you know, despite all of this, we're still being told, take the vaccine because it prevents transmission, which I think is would, would be would be seen as misinformation at this point, because I don't think it prevents transmission. I got it uh, despite receiving my booster uh, last December. Uh, so what's going on? I mean, you have all of this evidence, but public health seems to be on a different planet altogether. Yeah. Well, let's again. Let's go back to mass real fast. Yeah. There was very there was, there was I said the the, the consensus before is based on good randomized studies, and but there were like I, I think like it's like if you if you're if you ever go to a rookie doctor a new doctor, you ask them a tough question. The doctor then faces a, a dilemma. The doctor doesn't know the answer to your question, but you're they're, they're the doctor, so you you they're going to lose authority, right? If they don't say uh, if they don't give you an answer. And so everyone's looking to public health. It's March 2020. Everyone's looking to public health. What can I do to protect myself? And washing hands, yeah. Um, But that's not enough. People are still scared. And I think public health thought of masks as something that's low cost. Who cares? It won't harm anybody. We may as well just suggest it, even though the evidence base was crappy for it. I think it was this idea to give people some sense of of, of autonomy, some sense of like control over the risk that they faced. Um, I think it was, it was it was deeply irresponsible because some people believe them. Mm. Vulnerable people wore a mask, went out in public when they probably shouldn't have, thinking they were protected and ah. got the disease and died. I think that was a deeply cynical mm. thing to do. But it was it was based on on this like idea that public health has to give you something to do, um, even if the evidence base is bad. Uh, on the vaccines, um, the the transmission, the fact that it doesn't block transmission, that was kind of known. I mean, I was looking at the data I, by, by April 2021, I suspected it. And by June 2021, I was certain that it wasn't blocking transmission because you had mm-hmm. these like countries that were heavily vaccinated, like Israel, that see, saw these huge numbers of cases. Yeah, the Delta outbreak in Israel, despite being like 90%, 100% vaccinated. Yeah. So, yeah. so what that meant then is that the vaccine yeah. mandates, which really started arriving in July, August 2021, after the vaccine rollout kind of stalled, that uh, those vaccine mandates were based on bad reasoning. A mandate may make, I'm not sure it makes sense in this case also, but like it might make sense. It, it absolutely needed, you need a vaccine that stops transmission. Why? Because if the vaccine protects me against against severe disease and death, that's fine. Actually it does, I, I think, uh, for especially for older people. Um, but but uh, but that means I have private protection of the vaccine. It doesn't matter if I, you you can be in my presence and it doesn't make any difference to you uh, whether, whether, you know, that, that private protection, I'm not a danger to you. If on the other hand, the vaccine protects, uh, stops disease transmission, if I'm vaccinated, I can't infect you. Well, that in that case, it's really important that 
a very large fraction of the population be vaccinated, right? Uh, you can make an argument then for vaccine mandates. Although I think actually, if you have a mandate, that means that's a failure of public health. Uh, public health then, because if you have a trustworthy public health, public health says, look, this is a really good idea. People will listen to you because you trust you. Then public health is doing its job. If you're forcing, then all this, your, your public health authorities have failed already. Um, anyways, but uh, let's let leave that aside. Um, if it doesn't stop transmission, there's no argument for the mandate. That meant that the mandates were unscientific almost as soon as they started using them. There wasn't going to stop the disease spread. And it and again, created this division where like you have this, these clean people who were vaccinated and these unclean people who are unvaccinated. And in Canada uh, and also in the United States, many places, essentially the unvaccinated weren't allowed to participate in civic life. In Canada, they weren't allowed to travel in, in domestically. Um, I mean, I think that's just a mass violation of civil rights on the basis of a mis misperception about or, or a mistake about what the scientific evidence was was saying and also like i think a, a misunderstanding of how important civil rights are even yeah. in the middle of a pandemic uh, it's almost like we imported the caste system to the west uh which is exactly i've had that thought <laughs> several times like you can't i mean this is like you know like india struggled to try to get rid of the the echoes of the caste system forever yeah. and the west was wholesale embracing it yeah yeah um you know you've been very critical of the cdc and dr fauci in particular what what do you think went wrong in the u.s institutional setup um for example does it make sense for those uh who decide these policies these are also the same people who are deciding on funding the research for example uh doesn't this give them way too much power and distort distort both their incentives uh, and big pharma. I think you've absolutely nailed it. That's exactly yeah. what, what the what the problem here is. Uh, what yeah. you had is a small group of of people, a cartel, basically of scientific bureaucrats with tremendous power to control the minds and utterances of of, of a very large number of scientists because they control their funding, they control their social status. In, in effect, um, if you if you don't get NIH funding, you can't get, for instance, tenure at a major university. Um, for you know, if you're a biomedical mm -hmm. scientist. So, mm -hmm. so uh, you had, uh, and they they use that power to create this illusion of consensus. They, they uh, that was a deep abuse of their power. They, 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 and it was hubris at the bottom of it. They thought they knew better than everybody else what to do. Everyone was looking to them for answers and they, they thought they had the answers and they couldn't divide a debate. That would have shattered the illusion that, that, that they were omniscient. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I bet something similar was happening here, but, uh, um, you know, and that that's that's certainly something that uh, I think Canadians need to ask, I mean, that question. Um, but, uh, but Jay, um, recently there was this uh, very um, provocative essay in The Atlantic by economist uh, Emily Oster. Uh, she made this case for a pandemic amnesty. In other words, let's not worry about the mistakes that were made. Uh, let's not point fingers and let's move forward. What do you make of this argument? To me, it sounds like uh, we're letting people who made uh, avoidable mistakes off the hook. Um, is certainly here in the US and Canada, we shut out experts like like you, uh, you know, who weren't singing their tune and basically only listened to those who uh, told them what they wanted to hear, whether it was uh, mandates or lockdowns. Um, so what do you make of this argument? It seems like the power elites want to escape all accountability, accountability and move on without taking stock of exactly what went wrong and how things can be fixed. I, I mean, I think uh, 
I mean, I have to say in one, in one sense, I am sympathetic, right? So like if your family didn't allow you to come to, to Christmas because you were unvaccinated or something, mm. the, the only way forward is forgiveness. I, there has to be some, in that sense, um, there has to be some reconciliation of people with each other. The public health imposed this division society on us. And as, as a society, as families, as friends, we have to come together to, uh, to, to, to rise above that. And that's going to require some, some uh, actually a tremendous amount of forgiveness to, 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 to heal. I, I want that healing. Um, on the other hand, I think that, uh, you know, public health officials made huge mistakes, enormous catastrophic mistakes that damaged the lives of tr- a tremendous number of people. Mm. You can't just forget that and move on. You have to have some kind of, of, uh, of reckoning. And I think the right kind of reckoning uh, in, in, is to is to do an honest assessment of what went wrong, the policies, the mistake, the processes that led to those policies, the the lack of checks and balances, um, and 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 then reform the system so that those mistakes never happen again. Ultimately, I think if you do that, lockdown will become a dirty word. People will look on on the idea with absolute horror. That you know the the, the same way that 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 we look on on so many. Uh, so many vestiges of our past in horror, um, and I think, uh, and I think that 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 has to come out of an honest conversation about uh, about the the tremendous errors many of our leaders made, mm-hmm. and and I don't I'm generally I'm not in favor of like criminalization. If, if people did criminal acts, yeah, fine, but I do, but I am very much in favor of reform, right? I think we have to, for instance, you mentioned pharma. I, if, if it looks to all, all the, although I've worked with the FDA for years. It looks to me like for all the world, like the FDA has been captured by by pharmaceutical interest with the vaccines. Um, it's it's such a sad thing to see. Uh, the CDC has relied on absolutely shoddy science over the U.S. CDC over and over again. Same thing with Canada. Like I've mm. seen, I've seen the same same kind of problems in Canada for uh, both for the vaccines and for the um, for the for, for the for the Canadian public health. Um, the NIH has abused its power. Uh, all of these cry out for reforms. Uh, and unless we have an honest conversation, we're not going to get those reforms. So yes, forgiveness, especially at a personal level, amnesty, only after we've had a long conversation about what went wrong and reforms happen. Yeah. Uh, you, you recently said, uh, I think on Fox News, that academic freedom is now dead. Um, and I believe this is based in part on your experience at Stanford as someone who is critical of the establishment position. Um, I think you even said you received death threats uh, and possibly faced censure and felt ostracized for making an academic scientific argument. Um, And rather than engaging in an open debate, there was an attempt to shut down the conversation. If this is happening at Stanford, one of the top universities in the world, uh, you can bet it's happening in many other places. Uh, Do you think there's any hope of restoring academic freedom in universities? How do we go about doing this? I think I think we need new leadership in universities uh, at Stanford. I mean, it's not so much that people disagreed with me. I mean, that's just that's just normal in, in science, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't have any problem with that. I've spent my career disagreeing with other people. I mean, just that's just how science works. Uh, the problem is that uh, places like Stanford have an obligation to host sci- uh, the, the 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 debate, to host the the conversation that's happening. Instead, the way that Stanford behaved during the pandemic made it essentially a hostile work environment for me. And not just for me, basically anyone who spoke up against the pandemic, uh, the policies that were followed, like Scott Atlas, 
has reported the same thing. Johnny Anides has reported the same thing. I've gotten countless emails from junior colleagues who tell me the same thing that they that they that they shared my opinions but dared not speak up. Um, that is a that's a disaster for a place like Stanford. Stanford is yeah. motto is let the winds of freedom blow or when the let the winds of freedom blow. That's in German, which you can't pronounce. So that's but that's that's the translation. Um, it didn't live up to that motto. It didn't live up to the the its high high mission of promoting. Uh, high quality academic discussion, especially when it's difficult. If academic freedom, if Stanford doesn't stand for academic freedom and, the dis and this kind of freedom of discussion, when it's the most difficult, like it was during the pandemic, then it doesn't stand for it at all. Yeah. Like, that's the main purpose of our universities is to allow that the, the, the kind of discourse, the good faith dis discourse that allows science to progress or, or, or society to progress. And Stanford failed at that during the pandemic. Yeah, and so did many other institutions around the world, including here in Canada. Um, finally, on a personal note, uh, Jay, uh, looking back now, since uh, you, I, I feel like you've basically been proved right on pretty much everything on the pandemic. Do you feel a sense of vindication that it was all worth it? If you knew in hindsight just how much heat you were going to take for challenging the establishment and groupthink view, would you have approached things differently? I don't. I, if I hadn't spoken up, Rupa, during the pandemic, I, I, there was no purpose to my career. Like I found mm. myself in a place where I mean, I've been doing infectious disease policy work for for decades. I've done I've done health 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 policy work and, and health economics work. A lot of my research had pointed in this in this direction. If I and and um and I and I knew that the policies we followed were going to damage poor people, that were going to damage children. I had to speak up. I had no yeah. choice. And if I didn't hadn't spoken up, I would have regretted it the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I do think that so many of my, the ideas that I, that I was pushed, that I was arguing for have turned out to be right. Um, but I don't think that that's anything to do with me really. Cause I was just arguing for our ideas that before the pandemic would have been utterly uncontroversial focus protection of vulnerable people. Really? People would post to that, uh, not, not closing schools and damaging <laughs> children. Really? People would propose to that, oh, yeah, relying on evidence-based medicine standards for deciding, you know, whether a vaccine works to prevent transmission. I mean, none of that should have been at all controversial, honestly. Like, and they're all just, to me, like obvious things. Uh, I've worked on many, I've written 160 papers, 170, I forget how many, like I've lost count of how many uh, peer-reviewed papers I've published in my life. Um, and every one of them, I'm trying to say something new and different. None of what I was saying really during the pandemic struck me as new or different struck me as like just the normal application of what what uh, then it was stunning to me to see that so many of uh, people react so negatively to what I was saying when I, mm. when if you'd just gone back two years they would have said yeah that makes total sense why are you even mm. bothering me with this Jay it's so obvious yeah amazing um well um uh, yeah I mean it's unfortunate how things unfolded but um you know I really appreciate you Coming on the podcast to share your insights and your thoughts, Jay, uh, you know, thank you for a great conversation and for fighting the good fight. Um, uh, you know, speaking personally, my whole thinking about the pandemic changed radically when I read that Wall Street Journal op-ed uh, back in um, uh, 2020, March of 2020, and that speaks to the power of ideas and open debate in society, in a free society. So thank you for being here with me, and I sure hope I can have you back on the show again soon. Rupa, thank you also for your bravery during the pandemic. I've I've admired uh, your speaking up, but uh, you know it's sometimes a great personal cost as well. Uh, and um, 
I think, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's one of the few blessings of the pandemic that I've got to know people like you that I otherwise probably would never have interacted with. Um, and so, and thank you for having me on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Jay. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you in person one day soon. I'd love that. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Bye.